Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Tuesday, last week of Jesus' life, he's teaching, talking in the, in the temple courts. There's a large crowd around him. The religious leaders have already decided that he's got to go. But they're intimidated by the crowd. So, again, it's a, it's a large number of people, at least some of whom are pro, are pro Jesus. Not all of them are, but some of them are for sure. And the religious leaders are intimidated by that group. So, they don't really know what to do. We closed last week looking at this parable that Jesus told that was really directed against the religious leaders. He was saying through this parable, God is going to reject you all because you're rejecting me. So what we're going to look at this week and next week, uh, some people called the Tuesday of the last week of his life a day of controversy because there's so much tension between him and the religious leaders. Today we're going to look at two interactions he has, one with the Pharisees and one with the Sadducees, where they're they're challenging him, certainly not sincere in the questions they're asking. They don't actually care what Jesus says about the questions they're asking. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that will either get him in trouble with the Romans or that will cause him to lose popularity with the Jewish people because they, they've already decided he's got to go. They're just trying to figure out how do we make that happen. And then next week we'll look at an interaction he has with a scribe that feels very, very different that, that's a, with, a, with an individual who approaches him from a place of sincerity and Jesus answers him accordingly. But before we look at that, those controversies, I want to look just... Uh, starting in verse 36, it's a question that Jesus just kind of throws out to the crowd. I don't think he's expecting an answer. I think what he's trying to do through this question that he asks is he's trying to get the crowd. He's trying to kind of do an end run around the religious leaders and say to the crowd, y'all need to be thinking about this. They don't have it all figured out. Y'all are responsible. And I think what he would, what he's saying is y'all need to figure out what you think about me, kind of independent of what they think. About me, So just real, real briefly, we'll look at this because it helps set up the interactions that we'll be looking at this week and next week. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowds listened to him. With delight, so a lot of these interactions are really subtle. We don't get some of it. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not rabbis from 2,000 years ago, and so we can miss some of the logic and some of the the rhetoric that's going on there. What Jesus is doing is he's grabbing onto three truths and he's kind of putting them all on the table and saying, "How are all of these things true at the same time?" So it was true that a father would never call his son. Lord. An older generation would never use that term for a younger generation. A younger may use it for an older, for sure, but older never for a younger. So that's one. Two, the Messiah was going to be a son of David or a descendant of David. David had been dead a thousand years. It wasn't a, his one generation son, but someone in his family tree. And then three, that Psalm 110, which is what Jesus quotes, is a psalm about the Messiah. So Jesus puts all three of those truths on the table and says, help Let's figure this out. So we lose this in English, but the translation you'll see there behind me, the Lord, that's God, that's Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. 
Yahweh said to my Lord, and that's a different word. It's a word Adonai that just means anyone who's a superior to you. So David is saying, God the Father, that would be our language, God the Father said to the Messiah, said to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. David is calling the Messiah his Lord. And Jesus is saying, how's that? How can that be? Fathers don't call their descendants Lord. So if the Messiah is a descendant of David, how is David then saying that the Messiah is also his Lord? Again, for us, that doesn't necessarily strike us as, you know, earth shattering, but it was culturally for these guys like that, that they hadn't, that, that's a different way of looking at the Messiah. The Messiah is a descendant of David. Matthew and Luke go to great lengths to show that through their genealogy. But he's more than a son of David. And again, what I think Jesus is trying to communicate to the crowds is to say, these religious leaders, they don't have, they're not rock solid on this. Their case for the Messiah is not airtight. You guys need to be thinking about this. Their understanding is, it's not necessarily completely wrong, but it is inadequate. And I think he's appealing directly to the crowd. I don't think he's necessarily trying to show up the religious leaders through that. I think what he's trying to do is to say to the crowd, y'all need to be thinking about me. Y'all need to make a, de- a decision about me, which is the same thing he says to every one of us. Who do you say that I am? All of us have to make a decision about who we believe Jesus is. And we're not, we can't just say, well, so-and-so told me this. What do you think? And I think that's what he's saying to the crowd. So these two controversies back, uh, verse 13. Later they sent, so that's the the Jewish leadership. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose, in, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And they were amazed at him. So again, this is, there's no sincerity in their question. They're coming to catch him. That's the word for, putting a, uh, for hooking a fish or trapping an animal. They're trying to catch him in his words Jesus reckoned he, he, there's hypocrisy here, and that's, that's play acting. They're pretending to want to know what Jesus has to say and to respect him. They use all this flattery. The things they say are true, but they don't believe them. And Jesus says, why are you trying to trap me? Like, he gets it. He knows there's no sincerity in what they're saying and what they think is we've devised the perfect question. There's, he can't answer this without ticking somebody off. The tax they're referring to, it's about 25 years old. It was called a poll tax. So the Jews had to pay one denarius, that was a one day's wage, a year to the government. And they hated it. And they hated it because it went directly to the Roman government who are idolatrous, pagan, oppressive people. And they hated that they were having to support that. And so the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, well, should we? They know if he says no, we shouldn't pay the tax. And they're going to go run and tell the Romans and say, Jesus is encouraging people to not pay this tax. That's treasonous. Y'all should do something about that. And if he says, yes, we should pay it. Well, he knows all the people are going to then, he's going to lose popularity and credibility with the people because they hate the tax. So they think they've backed him into a corner. And Jesus' response is brilliant. Cliche to us. We've all heard this before. Brilliant what he says. 
He asked for a coin, the coin that was used to pay the tax. It's a denarius whose image is on it. And it's, there's a picture behind me and it's, it's a picture of the emperor. His name was Tiberius. That was the emperor at the time. And he says, okay. And then he says, you should give back. And that's the key phrase, give back. So the idea floating around at the time was all of the money that had Tiberius's face on it. It was all his. If it was in your pocket or my pocket, or it didn't matter. It's all his even when it's in circulation. And so what Jesus is saying, well, just give that back to him. It's his, it's got his face on it. That idea of image, that goes back to Genesis 126, same word, that we were created in the image of God. So give back to Tiberius what has his face on it and give back to God what has his image on it, which is you, all of you. Brilliant response. Give back to the emperor what's his, what's made in his likeness and give to God what's made in his image. In his likeness, give that back to him, which is all of you. What Jesus does there is he, he both affirms the role of government. It has a legitimate role and he relativizes it. He does both of those things. And remember this government that he's affirming is an idolatrous, pagan, oppressive government. Not righteous, not God-fearing, it's none of that. And he's saying, yeah, you pay the tax back to them, that's fine. And you give to God everything that's his, which is all of you. Again, brilliant response. He affirms the role of government, with, but he relativizes it. It's not absolute. Their authority is not absolute that God's is. And so just playing that out just a little bit for us, I don't want to dive too much into the political scene. There's several passages in the New Testament that talk about the way as Christians we relate to the government. They're on the screen behind me. You can look them up. The summary of those is we honor or obey the government insofar as honoring and obeying the government does not cause us to dishonor or disobey God. You already knew that. We honor the government insofar as honoring the government does not cause us to dishonor God. So government has a legitimate place. As Christians, we're not anarchists and we're not in the militia. Like we don't do either one of those two things. We recognize, and again, Jesus is saying this, and Paul is saying this, and Peter is saying this. Those are where those passages are. They're all saying this about a government that's idolatrous. On the back of that coin, it says Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. That's one of the reasons the Jews didn't want the coin. It's one reason they didn't want to pay the tax. is because the emperor claimed to be divine. This same government, Paul is saying, respect it. They're going to they're kill him. Peter's saying, respect it. They're going to kill him too. So again, these aren't great people. They're not God-fearing. They have a role. And according to the New Testament, we honor the government that is in authority over us insofar as honoring that does not cause us to dishonor the Lord. So again, no anarchy and no, you know, super right-wing militia. We don't do either one of those two things. But at the same time, we don't want to place more on the government. And I think this is the ditch that we fall in. This is one of the places where we've got to make some connections. Our governmental system is so different from the one in the New Testament. We have a voice. Jesus and those guys, they didn't have a voice at all. They just did what they were told. And so it's a different scene for us. And so we've got to figure out, so how do we apply these principles? And again, we don't have time to dive into all of that and make at least half of you mad probably if we did. What I want us to think through is what does it look like? to say, I want to give back to Caesar what's his, and I want to give God what's his. Where we live, we have a voice, and so that gives us opportunities and 
temptations. There are people, there are people in this room who are called into politics, who are called into policymaking, who are called uh, into working in and through the government. And bless God for those people. I'm not one of them, but I'm super grateful for people who are. And we want to support those people and we want to support those initiatives that are righteous and just. Where things start getting really funky for us is everybody who's involved is fallen. And the decisions that are, that are made, are, they're all flawed. We, we live in a fallen world. And so I think we have this temptation at times. And what we want to do is, is we think what we're trying to do is so noble and so right and so good it's so needed that anything we do to get there is okay. We let the ends justify the means. We can't do that as Christians. Eugene Peterson, not talking about politics, but talking in general about life, says you can't do God's work in a non-God way. But a lot of times I feel like we do that. Certainly that label is attached to the capital C church when it comes to politics. In the name of this, what we would say is a good and right end goal, people who love the Lord use deceit, manipulate, use fear. None of that stuff is righteous, and the, the ends don't justify the means. And it's a, but it's a temptation for us. Again, because we have a voice, that's a temptation when you have a voice, is to make sure your voice wins, to make sure your voice is the loudest, particularly when you are convinced that your voice is right and not just right for you, right for everyone. This is the best thing. It's the best thing. And if you add into that, for some of you who may be thinking, if we don't do this, God's going to judge our nation, you put all that stuff together and we can start justifying any number of behaviors to try to push our agenda through. Left and right. Not good. I think the other temptation we have in that same vein, because we have a voice in who gets elected and because those guys make the laws, that gives us a voice in the laws, although it's a bit removed, we can fall into the trap of thinking we can legislate the kingdom of God coming to the earth. That's what we think. If we make the right policies, then our nation will become more righteous and more holy. Laws have never changed anybody's heart. You know that. They never changed yours. They've never changed mine. Only the Holy Spirit does that. The kingdom of God will be established, but it's established by the king through the church, not by Congress through a law. Again, there's, we can talk about all of those specifics and how those things play out. I'm just thinking more broadly what does it mean to give to Caesar what Caesar's and to give to God's what, what's God's in the context of a place where we actually do have a voice? There are people who don't. There's millions of Christians right now. They live in a place where the government has said, you can't meet together. You can't evangelize anyone. And if anyone converts, they're going to be killed. There are countries, not just one or two. Right now, that's the law of their land. And in those places, Christians have to defy their government in order to follow God. And they literally are taking their lives into their hands every time they gather together. That's part of the deal. They're honoring God, not these, not, the, not these governmental authorities that would say you have to disobey your God in order to be a part of this country. And they, many of them face the consequences of that. That's not where we live. We have a voice 
and what's going on. And so our set of temptations, I, I think it looks different. And those are two that I see floating out there. Again, ends justify the means they don't. And that we, if we just make the right, if we get the right people in place who will make the right laws, then the kingdom will come. We don't say it that explicitly, but that's what we're going for. And it's just not, it's not the case. We can make better and worse laws, but ultimately the only thing that's going to bring the kingdom is the king. And he works through the church, which is us. And he doesn't force. We see that. He invites. And so we want to be people who do the same. All right, last story for the morning. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. So Sadducees are a different group still in leadership, different group from the Pharisees. They have multiple points of difference for our sake. This story, the two biggest points of difference, Pharisees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife. They believe that when you die, you cease to exist. And they only hold to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as authoritative. And so they, they take a, a, a custom, a command from the Old Testament, it's called leveret marriage. So uh, my wife's name is Mary Margaret. I'm married to Mary Margaret. I die before we have children. Then my brother Micah has to marry Mary Margaret. And the first kid they have is considered mine, which is super weird to us. It is. Why is that? But it, the idea was to preserve my family and to preserve my family line. Remember in the book of Joshua, what God, God's inheritance, what he gave to his people was land. And that land was divided up by tribes and clans and families. And so if I don't have an heir, then I, my, my family is wiped out in terms of our name from God's family. And this land, this inheritance that we have, that also goes away. And so it would be the responsibility of my brother basically to give me an heir so that my family line would continue. Again, weird to us, but it's an Old Testament uh, custom and an Old Testament law. And so the Sadducees, they're not trying, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus in trouble. The Sadducees, I think, are just trying to embarrass him. I think they're trying to make him look stupid. And so they create this incredibly far-fetched hypothetical so there's a woman and she marries a brother and he dies without kids, second brother, third brother, seven brothers. Then in the resurrection, if there is such a thing, whose wife will she be? So what they're trying to see is see how silly this idea of an afterlife is. Whose wife would this woman be? Because she's been married to all seven brothers. And Jesus says, you're an heir. You don't know the power of God and you don't know the Bible. And then he looks at two different things. First, he looks at marriage and in relative to the afterlife. And he says, there won't be. There's no marriage after death. You know that. The vows that you take when you get married until death do us part. Death ends marriage. Marriage is for this world, this life, not for the next one. 
We've said this before. So again, Mary Margaret, she is my wife. More fundamental than being my wife, she's my sister. She's my spiritual sister. And that's the bond that, it, that transcends death. We're all brothers and sisters adopted into one family by God the Father. Those are the relationships that remain. Marriage is for this life. Again, you can just, the, one of the things the Sadducees say, it does make sense. There are people, some of you, who've been widowed and you've remarried. So in the afterlife, in heaven, which, who, which spouse would be yours? Marriage ends with death. You already knew that. And Jesus points that out to them. And then this argument is lost on us, I think. It's lost on, it's difficult for me to kind of follow and see how it's a gotcha, but somehow it is. He says, when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to people living beyond death, when God introduced himself to Moses, he introduced himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is in Exodus 3. So this is one of the books that the Sadducees said was authoritative. In that book, God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, those guys have been dead for 400 plus years by the time God introduces himself to Moses. And in your mind, Sadducees, that means they cease to exist. The very next verse, God says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to lead my people out of Egyptian slavery into the land that I promised them. Now, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all ceased to exist, that is not encouraging to Moses because that promise was originally given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if they've ceased to exist, then God can't or doesn't keep his promises. Abraham did not inherit the promised land. Isaac did not inherit the promised land. Jacob did not inherit the promised land. And if when they physically died, they ceased to exist, and that means that promise has, has no uh, possibility of being fulfilled for them, which makes God a God who either can't or won't keep his promises. So to Moses, that, that's not going to encourage him to do anything. I'm the God who's broken my promise three times. Now I want you to do this. Jesus says, no. Those guys are still living, even though they're not walking on this earth. There is an eternity. There is an afterlife. Those promises are, are still in effect, even though it's been 400 plus years since those guys have been on this earth. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Again, that's subtle, but uh, was a, a powerful word to these Sadducees who didn't believe in an afterlife. I want us to close with just that idea, not necessarily thinking through the lens of marriage, but thinking through this, the the lens or the perspective of eternity. I don't know if you live in light of eternity. It's very difficult for me. I don't know if it's difficult for you. I do think the older we get, the easier, honestly. Um, there's not much in our life that reminds us of eternity except, ironically, death. Whether that's our impending death or the death of somebody we love. Those are the moments, I think, when we kind of get our head up and look beyond just the immediate present, when we look just beyond this world. I don't necessarily think it's terrible. This is the world that we live in, and we want to be fully present and engaged. The decisions, the choices, the actions that we take in this world, they matter a ton, parable of the talents. We don't want to waste what God has given to us. But I do think there's value, at least occasionally, and I'm not sure how we would define occasionally, but at least occasionally, again, kind of getting our head up and getting a broader gaze on eternity. I think it would be helpful. It provides perspective. And I think it provides perspective both if we're suffering or we'll just say successful. And we'll put those things in opposite categories. And you can define success in a lot of ways. 
think we're experiencing difficulty or when we're experiencing what we might call favor. Eternity, that eternal perspective can be helpful for us. It reminds us that both of those things are temporary. Both of those states are temporary. They're both going to end. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate an eternal perspective? Again, I'm not great at it, but this is the best that I know to do. One is to acknowledge the brevity of my life. I'm 47, and so it's easier for me to do that now than it was when I was 37 or 27 or 17. I've lived more than half of my life, hopefully. So it's easier for me now to think about, you know, time I have left and to recognize the time that I've spent is more. I'm closer to the finish line than the starting line. For some of you, that's not the case. terms of normal life expectancy. That's not the case. Life expectancy for us is 76 years now. So if, I, if I'm average, then I've got whatever that is, 29 years left. That's okay. You know, for some of you, it's more. But for all of us, regardless of where we are kind of on that journey to acknowledge our, our lives are, they're brief. James says our life is, it's a mist. It's that ephemeral. It just, it's here and then it's gone. And most of us don't live that way. And again, there's a, there's a point at which that's not helpful because it can cause us to kind of pull back and say, well, nothing I do matters, which is not true at all. Our choices have a profound impact both in this life and in the next one. But there's something to be said for recognizing my life is short and then asking God to give me that eternal perspective. That's an interesting prayer David prays in Psalm 39, the verses behind me, verse 4. Show me, the, show me the number of my days. Show me how fleeting my life is. He, say, he says that if you read that whole psalm, he's frustrated. Things are, he, he's, being, he's suffering in some way and he's really frustrated. And he wants to do something about it and he's trying to hold himself in. He's trying to restrain himself from acting out. God, show, and what I hear him saying, show me that, that like, it's gonna, it, kind of that old this too will pass thing. Like, it's okay. It's okay. And that's something that could be helpful for us. I don't know if this is maybe a helpful way for you to think. It helps me sometimes to think in metaphors. The most conservative group I know, they would say the earth is 6,000 years old. That's it. 2,000 from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 from Jesus to us. Most people are going to tell you the earth is 4.5 billion years old. I really don't care. We'll take 6,000 as, we'll just take it because nobody's going to say it's it's. It's younger than that. And if you make that 6,000 years equivalent to 24 hours, just for our sake, it's a, the, whole, the earth has been around for 24 hours. Your life, my life, is 18 minutes long. That's what we get. That's how long 76 years is relative to 6,000 years if you turn it into a day. If the earth is 6,000 years old, then my life and your life, we get about 18 minutes so for me, like I'm on like minute 11 or 12. Some of y'all are on minute 17, you know? And it's good for us to know that. And eternity is way more than 6,000 years. We actually don't even know what the eternity we say forever. My thinking is it's not, time is a construct that God has created for us. And we're actually going to be outside of time. So we don't have any idea what eternity is going to kind of feel like. Try to think about that for a long time. <laughs> but whatever it's going to be, it's going to be more, it's more than 6,000. 
It's more than that. Even if it's an ever-present now and we're outside of time, 18 minutes, like there's a, there, I've talked for more than eight. I've wasted your whole life. <laughs> Think about that. You can do anything for 18 minutes. Like, think about what you would say to somebody who was struggling, even if they had to struggle for 18 minutes. If you, listen, there's grace for you to, like, you can hang in there. In order for you to get 23 hours in 42 minutes, you can do anything for 18, can't you? Or somebody who's killing it to say, hey, listen, all of this ends in 18 minutes. It's all going to burn. You can't take any of it with you. So maybe don't put quite so much emphasis on what's happening in terms of those successes. Maybe don't put quite so much energy into making it work. Are you looking at eternity? And again, those are things that depending on our circumstances in life, we kind of, we're going to land in different places. There's a couple of scriptures behind me that you can look at in suffering and we'll just call it in success or in struggling and in times of what you would say favor. What does it look like to keep an eternal perspective? I don't think this is something we can force. I do think it's a gift from the Lord. I do think it's available, whether, regardless of how old you are chronologically, I do think it's something that God gives us glimpses of. And I think it can be really helpful for us, particularly where we live, where we're so insulated from end-of-life things. And as we keep going, I do wonder that the, the push that you see to try to live beyond limits. There's this thing in us. We don't, there, there's, there's a recognition, even among people who don't acknowledge the Lord, that uh, there, there's more to life than what we're experiencing. And people are trying to achieve that through science and technology and all of those things. I'm glad I'll be dead before all of that happens. But it's, I mean, people are doing that. They're actively, the transhuman movement and all that mess freezing people's brains or whatever, like it doesn't, it's better to say, we're going to die. God, help me number my days because I'm going to die, but I'm going to get a new body and then I'm going to live forever. And I can either live forever with you or forever apart from you. And it's way better with you. So teach me how to order my steps now so that I'm prepared for that future then show me how to make the most of my, the 18 minutes that I have because I'm looking forward to the 23 hours with you. Let's say a prayer. I really want you to think about that. Hold on before, you, before we say a prayer. So this is a tangent, but I do think it's important. I'm going to read you this little story that we're not going to talk about till next week. But I want you to hear something. So this is verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. So that's Jesus and the religious leaders. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them of all the commands, which is the most important. And then Jesus answered the way that you know that he answers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the guy says, well said, teacher. You're right in saying God is one and there's no a greater command than to love him and to love others. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. So this is specifically for ministry. The way Jesus relates to that man is very different from the ways he relates to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the difference 
is that man approaches him with sincerity. He asks a question and he actually wants to know what Jesus has to say. Neither the Pharisees or the Sadducees do. I don't know the question, but I, I had this thought last night. I think there's probably two or three of you, you have a question that you need to ask him, but for whatever reason you haven't, maybe it doesn't feel like a spiritual question. We're really good at asking God about direction in our life, but sometimes we, for whatever reason, we don't ask him about factual things that we just need to know. We, we just, for whatever reason, we, we, we Google it, but we don't necessarily ask him. And so I want to encourage you, again, those two or three of you, and maybe this just resonates in your heart without me having to be more specific. If you approach him with sincerity, he'll, ask, he'll, he'll answer. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. So if that's you, and again, this, it, that has nothing to do with what we talked about today, but I did have a sense that there'd be a couple of people here, and you, you have a burning question, and you, you need some answers. If you approach him with sincerity, he'll give those answers to you. The second couple of things or tied to our passage, really the, the one that I want us to hit on is this idea of living with an eternal perspective. If you feel like you've gotten just kind of caught up in this life, which is so easy to do, and all of your time and all of your energy and all of your effort and all of your focus is really just, it's just here. There's not any sense for you of ever getting your heads up and saying, how, do, how, how does my 18 minutes fit into this larger picture of what God is wanting to do in me and through me? Do I see my suffering in light of the glory that it's forming within me? Do I see the areas of success? Do I see those things recognizing they're temporary? I can't keep them anyway. So what does it look like for me to, to give those things away or to steward those things in a way that blesses other people and honors the Lord? I just wanna give you an opportunity just to ask the Lord, begin to show me the, my days Show me the length of my life. He's not going to tell you when you're going to die. But he will begin to give you a sense of what it is to live in light of eternity. So let's pray. Bo, you can come back. Ministry teams, you guys can come forward. Y'all know y'all can come forward and get prayer from these teams. You can come kneel here on this, at the stage and we'll, we'll leave you alone. We'll just put a hand on your shoulder, but we won't, we won't interrupt your prayer. If you're asking a question, I'd encourage you just to go ahead and come up, even as I'm praying. Go ahead and let these guys start to pray for you. I want to make sure that you get ministered to this morning. If you're one of those handful, you've got a, a burning question. You need an answer. Go ahead and come forward. For the rest of us, y'all pray with me if you're willing. Say something like this. God, I, I pray that you would give me an eternal perspective. And you can think about that even in light of what we're talking about with politics, how much of that. It, now, it doesn't it seem like the tactic from both left and right is to say the world is gonna end if this election doesn't go the way that we're wanting it to go. So much is freighted into every single decision, every vote, every new law. Like there's no sense at all of eternity, of God at work. God, would you give me an eternal perspective? Would you show me how to order my days? 
in the way that's the most honoring and glorifying to you. And maybe if you're suffering, you want to say, God, I pray that you give me grace to see the, where I'm suffering in light of eternity, in light of what you're doing in my life that will last forever. Would you give me grace to endure? Would you help me to see these areas of struggle as tools in your hand to make me more like Jesus permanently? If you're, again, maybe somebody who's tempted to chase after all of the success that the world would offer, maybe you want to pray something like this. God, would you give me the, I absolutely want to use all of the talents that you've given me. I want to invest them well. I don't want to fall into the trap of building bigger barns. I don't want to do that. I don't want to build with wood or hay or stubble. That's all going to burn. I want to build with gold and silver and costly stones. That's 1 Corinthians 3. Things that'll last, that'll make it through the fire of judgment. So would you help me in the midst of these times of favor or these times of success to recognize if it's not eternal, ultimately it's fleeting. God, for all of us, I pray without, you know, I want us to be sober without being solemn to acknowledge We have 18 minutes and then since the clock is ticking and again, not to put pressure on us, but we wanna live intentionally and faithfully and with a deep sense of peace and trust that you work in us and through us and you also work outside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 